everyone. Welcome to the Internist's Guide 2, a limited series dedicated to high-yield guidelines in internal medicine. Today we are joined by Dr. Malika Sharma. Dr. Sharma is an infectious disease and HIV physician and clinician teacher at St. Michael's Hospital. She's also the education lead for the Division of Infectious Diseases at St. Michael's Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Sharma. Thanks so much for having me. Let's get right into it. Today, we're going to be talking about the 2015 AHA scientific statement on infective endocarditis. We make reference to the 2020 ACC AHA guideline for the management of patients with valvular heart disease. I'm really looking forward to going through this guideline with you because it's so high yield for our colleagues and internal medicine residents. So from the 2015 AHA scientific statement, can you review for the audience the modified Duke's criteria for infective endocarditis? Absolutely. So I think the first thing is important to say that the modified Duke's criteria, it's really a framework or a scaffolding that helps you put together the clues or the different pieces of information that you're going to get from your history, your physical, and the investigations that you order. It's not a replacement for your clinical judgment. And so it's really important to kind of remember that, that it's kind of just a way to help you organize your thinking. The way that the modified Duke criteria are laid out, they basically give you three ways of thinking about a diagnosis of endocarditis. So one, this diagnosis has been rejected. Two, this diagnosis is possible. Or three, this diagnosis is definite. The only things that really get you a definite diagnosis of endocarditis according to these criteria are pathologic criteria. So either you've actually grown or you've seen the pathogen on histopathology of the actual vegetation itself or of an intracardiac abscess or some other pathologic lesion, and that you've essentially confirmed that with histology. In terms of clinical criteria for a definite diagnosis of endocarditis, they use both major and minor criteria. I'll talk more about what those are, but basically if you have two major criteria or one major plus three minor or all five minor criteria, then you can consider it a definite diagnosis of endocarditis. Possible endocarditis would be just kind of one major and one minor or three of the minor categories. And then rejected would be, you know, you've got another pathological diagnosis at surgery or at at autopsy not having been on antibiotics for a prolonged period of time because obviously antibiotics may have gotten rid of your evidence on pathology, or if you've kind of firmly developed another alternative diagnosis. In terms of the major and minor criteria, the major criteria really are in two big categories or buckets. So there's blood culture stuff, and then there's endocardial or echocardiographic stuff. In terms of the blood cultures, typically what you're looking for is a typical microorganism that would be consistent with endocarditis, so something like viridin's group strep or a HASIC organism, we'll talk about what those are, staph aureus or community-acquired enterococcus, and where you're seeing them on two separate blood cultures, ideally drawn greater than 12 hours apart, or all three of a majority of three or four sets of blood cultures that have been drawn at least an hour apart. There is a serology criteria too, so a single positive blood culture for Coxiella burnettii or serology that's greater than 1 in 800 would also be a major criteria. In terms of echocardiographic involvement, what you're looking for in terms of major criteria is seeing evidence of an intracardiac mass on the valve or in the path of regurgitant jets or some sort of implanted material in the absence of an alternative anatomic explanation, or if you're seeing an abscess or a new partial dehiscence of a prosthetic valve or new valvular regurgitation. So it can't just be a previous regurg that's known that's getting a bit worse. The minor criteria are mostly clinical, so something that predisposes you to endocarditis, like a predisposing heart condition or injection drug use, having a fever, 
having vascular phenomenon or embolic events like septic pulmonary infarcts or mycotic aneurysm, Janeway lesions, those kinds of things. And then immunologic phenomenon like glomerulonephritis or Osler's nodes or Roth spots or a positive rheumatoid factor. And then there's microbiologic evidence, so positive blood cultures that don't meet the major criteria. So let's talk about the echocardiogram features. What would be reasons to pursue a TEE or transesophageal echocardiogram in patients with suspected endocarditis versus in patients with confirmed endocarditis? So that's a great question. We know that transesophageal echocardiogram or TEE is more sensitive than transthoracic or TTE to detect vegetations and abscesses. But many cardiologists also find that the TTE is better to look at hemodynamic function and actual valvular function. The other aspect is, of course, that transthoracic echocardiogram is usually more readily accessible. It's a less invasive procedure, and it doesn't require the patient to be NPO. So often it's the thing that you can get done faster. And then if your echocardiogram makes your diagnosis and there's no complicated features that need a TEE, you may actually have spared your patient a more invasive procedure. So most people start off with getting a transthoracic echo um, if you're suspecting endocarditis. If there's reasons to think that you're not going to get good windows, so maybe the person has COPD or they've got previous thoracic surgery or they have obesity or other reasons that might make it hard to get good windows with a TTE, a TEE might be your first test of choice in those circumstances. The other times to really think about a TEE is that if you see something on your transthoracic echocardiogram that makes you worried about the potential for complications like an abscess, or if your clinical features evolve to make you concerned about the potential for complications. So for example, you see ECG findings that make you worry about an aortic root abscess, for example, then you might proceed with a TEE. And so, you know, the biggest thing is you might be able to get away without it if your transthoracic echo shows vegetations, but there's low likelihood of complications. But otherwise, if you have a high index of suspicion, you really should be pursuing a TEE because it will make a difference in terms of deciding whether you think this person has endocarditis or not and being able to definitively rule it out. For our audience, the treatment regimens and duration for some of the most common pathogens, streptococcus, staphylococcus, and enterococcus, in need of valve endocarditis. Sure. Um, I think probably more, more helpful than kind of outlining the exact details of each regimen is to kind of highlight some of the key differences and sort of some of the key factors to consider. So for staph aureus, specifically MSSA or methicillin susceptible staph aureus, really you can choose between cloxacillin, which would be two grams IBQ for hours, which, you know, has maybe some volume concerns for certain patients or, you know, also tends to clog up pick lines. So that might be another issue. And people may also have allergy, of course. Or cefazolin, 2 grams IVQ, 8 hours. Evidence now suggests that both beta-lactams, clocks, and cefazolin can be used for endocarditis. And we would use those for six weeks in native valve staph aureus endocarditis. There is some evidence to suggest that if there's right-sided endocarditis and it's completely uncomplicated, so no endocardial complications, no evidence of embolic phenomenon, no other concerns, you might be able to get away with two weeks. But I would be very careful in those circumstances to be really confident that you're classifying this as uncomplicated. The evidence for gentamicin use upfront is, is mixed in native valve endocarditis. Some people do use it for three to five days. The main reason to consider using an aminoglycoside is because of the synergistic effect and the possibility of something called an inoculum effect, where if there's really high levels of bacterial density, it may actually cause your antimicrobials to be less effective. 
And that might also create resistant subpopulations and also this idea that more stationary phase bacteria can lose some of their penicillin binding proteins. So beta-lactams might be less effective. And then when you're using it for synergy with enterococcus, for example, it's partly for this bactericidal effect. So going back to native valve endocarditis for Staph aureus, you're looking at six weeks of clocks or cefazolin, unless it's uncomplicated right-sided. And if it's MRSA, you're stuck with probably Vanco for six weeks. For enterococcus, it really depends on your penicillin MIC. If it's susceptible, you can use penicillin G for four to six weeks plus gentamicin for that same time frame. As you know, gentamicin has a very narrow therapeutic window and also has significant renal and autotoxicity, and so it can be quite hard to take. So the gentamicin enterococcus piece, we don't always use, and actually increasingly we use ampicillin and ceftriaxone. So I would say most common practice now is, despite the fact that in the guidelines, penicillin and gentamicin is sort of what's written up front, most of us are using ampicillin 2 grams IVQ 4 hours plus ceftriaxone 2 grams IVQ 12 hours for 6 weeks. If you're penicillin resistant, then you're looking at using vancomycin, unfortunately, in those circumstances. And again, the guidelines will say to use gentamicin with that, but most people cannot tolerate that from a renal uh, or autotoxicity perspective. And then lastly, with regards to your strep species, again, it depends on whether they're penicillin sensitive or not. And there's actually the way that the guidelines um, break it down. There's penicillin susceptible, so an MIC of less than 0.12 micrograms per milliliter. There's kind of penicillin intermediate, so 0.12 to 0.5 mics per mil and then penicillin resistant or greater than 0.5 mics per mil. And then that will also include, that resistant category will include certain strep species like abiotrophia, granulocatella, and gamella. For the other ones, so for example, for penicillin susceptible uh, viridins group strep, you can use penicillin for four weeks or ceftriaxone for four weeks um, or vancomycin, obviously, if there's an allergy for four weeks. And in that situation of penicillin shortages, ampicillin can be used as a substitute. Thanks. And I wanted to clarify when we were talking about the ceftriaxone ampicillin combination that we may often use in some of the cases you described, is that also to address the piece of synergy? Absolutely. So it's partly for synergy. Um, Actually, it's in large part for synergy. And it also helps you avoid the gentamicin, which is what you'd be using for synergy in other circumstances. So using an example, such as Viridin's group streptococcus, can you illustrate how our management might differ if we were talking about prosthetic valve endocarditis? Sure. So I think the big thing to remember is like big picture principles is that the main differences will be duration. So for prosthetic valve endocarditis, using the example of strep viridens, for example, in prosthetic valve endocarditis, you're looking at six weeks, whereas in native valve endocarditis, you're often getting away with four weeks in those circumstances. Um, So the duration is a difference, and then the role of gentamicin is a difference. So for example, in prosthetic valve endocarditis, in viridens group strep, there's often an attempt to add gentamicin for at least the first two weeks. Again, this is all very dependent on patient factors. So we can't be dogmatic about the use of gentamicin because really it has to be a very clear discussion with patients about the risks and benefits. Because the one you know example I always give is for an elderly person, you know, not having vertigo might be the difference between living independently or not, right? So these are not minor side effects that we're describing to people. But in prosthetic valve endocarditis, if you look at the guidelines, they do say, you know, plus or minus gentamicin, three milligrams per kilo per day, divided Q8 hours for two weeks. And so that's kind of the key thing to remember there. If we were talking about staph aureus, native valve versus prosthetic valve endocarditis, in both circumstances, you're treating for six weeks. So duration isn't really the big difference, but you are going to try to use gentamicin upfront for two weeks if you can. And you're also going to be adding rifampin, 300 milligrams Q8 hours for the full duration of six weeks for biofilm penetration. But that's in the context of staph aureus, not with the other agents in prosthetic valve endocarditis. 
Great. And so just to clarify, it would only be in the case of staph aureus in terms of organism where we would be thinking about reaching for the rifampin when it comes to prosthetic valve. That's where the evidence is, yes. What should an internal medicine resident know about the management of the HACIC organisms and the non-HACIC gram-negative bacilli infective endocarditis? Sure. So the HACIC group is a group of fastidious gram-negative bacilli. So it's an acronym for Haemophilus species, Agrigatibacter species, Cardiobacterium hominis, Iconella corridans, and Kingella species. And these HACIC group organisms represent about 5 to 10% of a community-acquired native valve endocarditis in people who are not using substances. Typically, they've been uh, difficult to grow because they grow slowly in standard blood culture media. They might require prolonged incubation. But with all of the improvements that have happened in the microbiology lab over the last decades, they are increasingly easy to identify and easy to grow. So we're finding that we're making more diagnoses of these HACIC organisms over the last several years. I think the key things for an internal medicine resident to know is that if you find bacteremia caused by a HACIC organism, you have to think about the possibility of endocarditis. Identifying any of those organisms should lead you to think, does this patient have endocarditis? What are my history, physical, and echocardiographic findings to support or refute this potential diagnosis? Almost all strains of the HACIC group are susceptible to ceftriaxone. And so treatment for most HACIC-related endocarditis would be ceftriaxone 2 grams IBQ 24 hours for four weeks. If we were in the U.S., we'd see more amp sulbactam used, but we don't have access to that antibiotic. If people are truly beta-lactam intolerant, you can use ciprofloxacin. But again, I would really try to confirm whether that beta-lactam intolerance is real or not, because as we know, fluoroquinolones have numerous side effects, particularly with prolonged usage. So if you can avoid that, that would be my preference. That's probably learning pearl too around HACIC organisms. In terms of non-HACIC gram-negative causes of endocarditis, this is actually quite rare. In one large database study, it was only 1.8% of all endocardidities. IV drug use has been identified as a potential risk for gram-negative pathogens, but hospitalization is another big one. And don't forget that there are people who are kind of frequently hospitalized without necessarily having an admission. So think about your um, dialysis patients, for example. Another important gram-negative bacilli to think about, given that most of the endocarditides that we would see with gram-negative aerobic bacilli would be Enterobacteriaceae and Pseudomonas. Um, but Salmonella is kind of a special example. So if you see a bacteremia with Salmonella, we know that salmonella likes to cause complicated cardiovascular infections like endocarditis or endarteritis, aneurysms, et cetera. So it would be important to think about that in the right patient population. For gram-negative bacilli, the guidelines suggest that you know, cardiac surgery would be really reasonable to consider along with six weeks of combined antibiotic therapy. So that's kind of an interesting thing. So even if it's nice and susceptible to your fluoroquinolone, Usually, you're going to use combined therapy with a beta-lactam plus either an aminoglycoside or fluoroquinolone. And realistically, it'll probably be fluoroquinolone with regards to tolerability. Um, and you would be doing that for six weeks. about fungal endocarditis, how would our management differ in, in this case? Sure. 
So we know that um, there are many well-recognized risk factors associated with fungal endocarditis, so specifically um, the use of IV drugs or being immunocompromised, but increasingly also having any kind of cardiovascular device. So, um, you know, a central venous catheter, a PIC line, a permanent pacemaker, defibrillator, prosthetic valves. Most fungal endocarditis is candida or aspergillus. And I think probably one of the key pearls to remember is that you have to think about the non-cardiac sites where your infection can metastasize. So, for example, in Canada, you have to think about, does this patient have endophthalmitis and make sure that ophthalmology sees? You know, that might require both systemic and intraocular antifungal therapy. And it also means that whenever you're thinking about the antimicrobial that you're going to use, you have to ensure, does it penetrate the sites that this infection involves? So, you know, it's not just enough that you're treating, you know, the blood culture. You have to make sure that does this antifungal get into the eye? Does this antifungal get into the brain if appropriate? According to the guidelines, fungal endocarditis is a standalone indication for surgical replacement. And the guidelines suggest that amphotericin B is the initial drug of choice. However, again, often because of tolerability and renal dysfunction, it's not always the thing that we can necessarily go to. And the guidelines themselves say that, you know, newer antifungal drugs are available, like echinocandins, for example, or, you know, high-dose azoles. And so perhaps the guidelines should be revisited in terms of that recommendation that amphotericin be up front is the most important thing. Typically, we would give antifungals for over six weeks. And then the guidelines say that you can give lifelong suppressive therapy with an oral azole. Part of this is, you know, when, when has suppressive therapy been used? It's been used when people have combined medical and surgical therapy or when they were not able to have surgical therapy for some reason. Part of the reason for this is because there's high relapse rates and often there's quite a long delay in relapse. So there's this idea that perhaps if we suppress long term, that that may be a benefit. Most of this data comes from anecdotal case series. And there was a meta-analysis of 64 patients with candidal endocarditis who did not undergo valve surgery because they were not good candidates. And in those patients, they found, you know, 21 of them were treated with lifelong suppressive therapy and 20 of them survived, but only to, like the study was only to six months. Great. So I wanted to go back to one point you mentioned when we were talking about empiric therapy for fungal endocarditis. If our patient, for instance, wasn't able to tolerate amphotericin, empiric therapy would then be an echinocandid. Is that fair to say? As you, or a high-dose azole? Yeah, and I think it would depend a little bit, obviously, on what fungal etiology we're suspecting and also our own hospital antibiograms, right? So the recommendation might be slightly different in a community hospital versus at St. Mike's versus a hospital with a large cancer center in terms of what are the likely fungal pathologies to be seen there and what are their likely resistance patterns. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess also for us as residents, one thing, as you mentioned, would be also remembering the piece about penetration. And so if we're suspecting um, endophthalmitis, that the echinocandins would not be penetrating into the eye. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing to remember there is that we are not always able to assess whether people have endophthalmitis clinically, and so really they need a fundoscopic assessment by ophthalmology. to something a little bit different. What is our approach to culture negative endocarditis? Sure. So there's many potential causes for culture negative endocarditis. One of the biggest causes is that someone's already gotten antibiotics, right? So if you get antibiotics before the blood culture is drawn, it reduces the recovery rate of bacteria by up to 40%. So it's always really important. And this is probably 
you know, this is not like a medical pearl as much as it is a practice pearl. You always have to look at the emergency room charting to see did they actually get a dose of ceftriaxone and as a throw in, in the emerge or Pintasa or whatever, because often it will not be recorded in like many of the hospital computer systems because it was a dose given in emerge. So you always have to look at that because it will be timed, right? Like they'll say when they gave it. And then you look at that based on when was that first blood culture drawn. So getting that that answer to the question, at least, of is antibiotics playing a role into why my cultures are negative? There's a bit of detective work that has to be done there. In the absence of prior antibiotics, other reasons why you might get culture negative endocarditis is it might be that you have a highly fastidious organism, something that doesn't grow easily in the lab, or maybe it's something that actually just doesn't, you can't grow it. You have to do serology to look for it. Whenever you're approaching someone with culture negative endocarditis, it's really important for a really good history and physical, right? So this is why people go into ID, because we really like asking questions about all of the different exposures that people might have had. So really, you're looking at, you know, are there any indwelling medical devices? Is there a history of injection drug use? What is their dentition like? Is there a history of alcohol use disorder or cirrhosis? Because, for example, various conditions will predispose you to certain pathogens over others. So, for example, in the example of cirrhosis, you know, we might be more likely to think about things like Bartonella or Listeria or Aramona species even. You know, asking about exposures to dogs or cats, suddenly we might be thinking about Bartonella or Pasteurella or Capnocytophaga. If someone has lots of exposure to infected farm animals or unpasteurized milk, suddenly you're thinking about Q fever and Brucella, right? So really important to kind of take a really good history to help you broaden what serology you might be ordering and what kinds of tests you might be ordering. In terms of when should you send serology for things like Bartonella or Q fever, we know that Brucella, Bartonella, and Q fever, and specifically Bartonella and Q fever, are two of the more likely causes of culture-negative endocarditis in terms of things that you can diagnose with serology. So most people with culture-negative endocarditis, I think, should get at least those two serologies. And then you may add additional things based on other exposures. We also have the capacity to do PCR in some settings. And so that's something that can be discussed with your microbiology lab in terms of whether it's appropriate to do 16S PCR on a valve that's taken out at the time of surgery, for example. One thing I wanted to ask you when um, we're thinking about some of these fastidious organisms, or just in general when we're thinking about um, other organisms other than the common ones we've described, as a practice point, is there any instruction we should be giving when we're talking to microbiology about how long to hold blood cultures for? Sometimes we ask the lab to hold them for longer. What is your general recommendation around that or um, what should we be doing when we're seeing this in practice? Um, I think that you know, the more information you can give the lab, the better, because then they can often also decide that they're going to plate it differently or put it on different media or that they're going to hold it longer. You know, partly it depends a little bit on your lab. So some labs, uh, depending on the technologies that they're using in their specific laboratories, they may not technically need to hold things for that long because they, they have you know, much better testing capacities kind of right up front. Um, whereas in other labs, it may be prudent to hold them for 14 days. So I think the key thing is to just let the lab know as much as possible why you're ordering a test. So in terms of management, what are some of the surgical indications for infective endocarditis? And does the evidence or the Bedura at all paper tell us about the timing of surgery and when we should maybe pursue early surgery for patients? Sure. So when I think about surgical indications for endocarditis, they sort of are lumped into three main buckets. So one is, you know, are there vegetation-related things? So, you know, is the vegetation still persistent after having systemic embolization somewhere else? Is it an anterior mitral leaflet veg with a size greater than 10 millimeters? 
Have they had more than one embolic event during the first two weeks of antimicrobial therapy? Or is the vegetation increasing despite appropriate antimicrobial therapy? So that's kind of all vegetation stuff. Then you've got valvular stuff. So is there some mechanical reason why you should actually take this person for surgery because they're developing signs of a ventricular failure or they have heart failure that's not responding to medical therapy or they've actually now developed perivalvular extension or perforation of a valve or the valve has vehist, ruptured or developed a fistula. And then there's kind of your other categories. So things like, you know, you've developed a new heart block or there's really large abscess or the abscess is extended despite appropriate antimicrobial therapy. In terms of timing of surgery, um, there was a systematic review and meta-analysis actually in 2016 by um, Narayanan et al. that was published in HEART. They included randomized control trials, retrospective cohorts, and prospective observational studies that looked at outcomes between early surgeries at 20 days or less and conservative management for infective endocarditis. And what they basically found was that early surgical intervention, so 20 days or less, was actually associated with a significantly lower risk of mortality in patients with infective endocarditis. Probably the key pearl, I think, for trainees around this is that it's really important to have conversations with your surgical colleagues, right? That replaces so much of uh, trying to guess what people are thinking or what the rationale is. Uh, you know, a good conversation with your surgical colleagues can really help you understand why they're recommending one thing versus another. So, Dr. Sharma, in the 2020 update, there are a few indications from a surgery perspective that have changed when it comes to infective endocarditis. What are some of the highlights around this? Yeah, so there aren't a huge number of changes with regards to surgical indications, but there's a couple of things that people might have noticed. So one is that in the 2020 update, they say that in people who have endocarditis and have evidence of persistent infection, so persistent bacteremia or fevers after starting appropriate antimicrobial therapy, they're now using a cutoff of five days instead of seven days. So they're saying if you still have bacteremia or if you still have fevers after five days of starting appropriate antibiotic therapy, then early surgery is indicated. And by early, they mean during that hospitalization, that initial hospitalization, and before completing antibiotics. The other kind of update is around people who have implanted cardiac electronic devices or pacemakers or defibrillators. And the new guidelines are basically saying that if you have a definite diagnosis of endocarditis, whether that's on the mitral valve or the aortic valve or wherever, removal of the pacemaker and defibrillator system in completion, so leads, pocket everything. So the generator, all of that should come out. And in the previous guidelines, it had actually said if you only had documented involvement of the leads. I think increasingly there's a recognition that if you've got an implanted electronic device, if you've got endocarditis somewhere, it's very likely that the entire system is infected and that would then mandate removal of the whole thing. So we've talked about history, physical, investigations, management, now prophylaxis. So I know there have been changes in the indications for when prophylaxis is needed for routine medical and dental procedures when it comes to infective endocarditis. Um, there have been some conditions removed from the recommendations. I know mitral valve prolapse, bicuspid valve disease, and hokum, among others. Can you share with the audience why some of these conditions were removed? And so when should we use prophylaxis when it comes to routine medical dental procedures? Sure. So it's actually a lot simpler now. And the reason for that is because we know that, you know, endocarditis is much more likely to result from frequent random exposures through daily activities, like brushing your teeth, for example, than bacteremia caused by a dental, a GI tract, or a GU tract procedure. And we also know that prophylaxis probably prevents an exceedingly small number of cases of endocarditis in these populations of people getting these prophylactic regimens before these procedures. And we also know that antibiotic-associated adverse events are, you know, they're very real, and we have to balance those against the potential benefits of prophylaxis. 
Probably the most important thing that people can do is maintain optimal oral health and hygiene so that we're not getting random bacteremias all the time from brushing our teeth. Um, that's probably far more important than prophylactic antibiotics. So all of those things combined have led to this change in both who should get prophylaxis and what they should be prophylaxed for. So in terms of who still gets prophylaxis, people who have a prosthetic heart valve, people who've had any previous episode of endocarditis, people who've had a heart transplant and have cardiac valvulopathy, so both of those things, or certain people who have congenital heart disease. So if they have an unrepaired cyanotic congenital heart disease or something that's completely repaired within the first six months of that procedure, or if it was repaired, but there's some residual defect that causes an inhibition of endothelialization. So that's really it. Those are the only people who should be getting prophylaxis. And then the things that they're getting prophylaxed for would be things like dental procedures that involve manipulation of the gingival tissue and the periapical teeth, um, a respiratory procedure that involves a biopsy. So, you know, a BAL, not really, but a bronch with biopsy, yes. And then I always find this one a bit funny. So in terms of genital urinary tract, the recommendations are only if there's active infection. But then to me, that's not endocarditis prophylaxis. That's treatment of a GU infection, right? But the principle applies that those people should be treated for that active infection prior to the procedure happening. Right. That makes sense. Awesome. You're right. That list is easier to remember than the previous. <laughs> For sure. wanted to ask you if there's any specific considerations um, around investigations or management in people who use substances. Absolutely. So, you know, I think one thing that's really important is that the use of substances is one of the most stigmatized conditions in healthcare, and it really affects how people are treated and how people are able to um, engage with and participate in their care when they feel so stigmatized. People often present acutely, right? They're coming in because they're unwell from their endocarditis or their septic pulmonary emboli or what have you. And abstinence may not necessarily be feasible or it may not be desired by the, the patient or the person. That's not why they're coming in, right? And there's often this discussion of whether active substance use is a reason to not have a surgery or to not get a PICC line. And with regards to the surgical piece, this is a common practice, but there's actually not a ton of evidence to support that practice of sort of not having surgery just because of ongoing active substance use. And there's some really you know, major ethical implications to that. There was actually a systematic review and meta-analysis in 2019 in the Clinical Infectious Disease Journal uh, led by Hall that looked at RCTs, prospective cohorts, and retrospective cohorts that reported on 30-day mortality or in-hospital and operative mortality following valve surgery between people who use substances intravenously and those who don't. And they basically found no difference, right? So there's no increased mortality if you're using substances, at least in the 30-day period. I think kind of the key thing to think about when someone's admitted with endocarditis is we really have to treat the whole patient, right? The whole person. And we have to think about what are all of the things that might potentially be a barrier to being able to treat this endocarditis and for this person to engage in their kind of most optimal health care. So making sure we're addressing underlying mental health concerns that they might have and involving our psychiatry colleagues if appropriate. If the person is interested and able to see an addictions care team at hospital, can that be done? Making sure people are not experiencing withdrawal, making sure they have adequate safety and support you know, to, to have a hospital admission. You know, hospitalization may also be a chance to bridge to things like opioid agonist therapy or to safe supply and to partners in the community for when they go home. Um, so it's really a missed opportunity if we don't do that. But it's also really important to remember that the, the patient kind of has to drive that, right? So it's where are they at and what are their needs that they want addressed and how can we kind of all work together as a team to achieve all of those multiple goals? 
And I know in the 2020 update, there were a few other points for us to take away from. So they talked about using a multidisciplinary model of care for people who use substances. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think the 2020 update reflects really a changing epidemiology of infective endocarditis in North America and an increasing recognition that infective endocarditis is a major issue in people who use substances and that our approach to caring for people who use substances needs to reflect a multidisciplinary understanding of their care needs. And I think a recognition that, you know, talking about this in a very biomedical antibiotic surgery sort of way in isolation is not actually serving patients well. And so the new guidelines, they talk about how people who use uh, drugs and when they have endocarditis, there's a higher complexity of care, higher rates of readmission, higher rates of reinfection, and really that care for these patients is best when it's multidisciplinary involving not just the cardiologists and the cardiac surgeons, but also an infectious disease specialist, as well as addiction specialists. And they don't necessarily say this, but I would argue as well as really clear linkages to outpatient care, whether that's their primary care, opioid agonist therapy, other multimodality interventions to treat the person's substance use, if that's something that's of interest to them, um, I think is an important piece. And so it's really neat to see the guidelines sort of reflect that and say that really people who use substances really should be cared for in a way that is interdisciplinary, collaborative, and I would argue also involves the patient actively in their own care. One of the other things that they mention is that in patients with recurrent endocarditis and continued IV drug use, consultation with addiction medicine is recommended to discuss long-term prognosis. And they say for the patients refraining from actions that risk reinfection before repeat surgical intervention is considered. I'll say just two things about that. One is I think it's really important that people see the word repeat in there. So the guidelines are not saying that, you know, valve replacement surgery should not be offered for people who use substances because they're not talking about the first valve replacement. They're talking about a repeat valve replacement. And I would also make the point that they're not saying that you shouldn't offer a repeat valve replacement either, because I think in real life, sometimes we see conversations play out this way and in in ways that are sometimes quite problematic. And I think that it's just sort of highlighting the point that we should be managing people holistically. And to me, I would argue that ongoing substance use should not be a reason to withhold surgical intervention. Of course, I'm not the surgeon, but I think that I'm at least happy that the guidelines are saying that, you know, just involve addictions medicine so that it's a conversation rather than a hard no. Thanks. Thanks for pointing out that nuance. I'm not sure I realized that in my first pass through. And it's nice to see, as you say, some of this formalized in the guidelines that we're approaching things from a holistic manner. Finally, I wanted to ask a follow-up question about oral therapy for endocarditis. We have a little bit more information about oral therapy for infective endocarditis, and I'm curious what this looks like and what clinical situations one would consider this. Yeah, so in the 2015 guidelines, they really talked about the, the limited evidence around oral therapy for endocarditis, and they really specifically talked about two studies that looked at four-week antibiotic regimens that largely involved a fluoroquinolone like ciprofloxacin and rifampin. And they were specifically talking about in the 2015 guidelines, that combination regimen for treatment of uncomplicated, right-sided MSSA endocarditis in people who use substances. So, you know, I think one of the things to recognize, though, is that fluoroquinolones and rifampin are not the easiest drugs to use in anybody. Um, But certainly, I think there's challenges in people who might be using substances or who are on therapies like methadone, for example, that would interact with the rifampin. In the 2020 guidelines, in the update, 
they actually talk a lot more about oral therapy because they are really relying on the data from the study that came out uh, in the New England called the POET study, the Partial Oral Treatment of Endocarditis Study. And that's actually a very different patient population. So in the POET study, what they really were looking at were people who had stable left-sided endocarditis that was caused by one of four bugs, Streptococcus, E. faecalis, Staph aureus, or coagulase negative staph. And so, again, this is left-sided compared to what the 2015 guidelines were talking about in right-sided. Now there's these four gram-positive bugs that are being considered. And in the POET study, people had to have been on IV antibiotics for at least 10 days, and then they were randomized to either continuing on their usual IV antibiotics or discharge with oral antibiotics. And as part of the protocol, they were reassessed by transesophageal echocardiogram within one to three days of completing their assigned treatment to confirm that they'd actually responded to therapy. And they found that it was basically at six months after completing treatment, the switch to oral therapy was non-inferior. Some important things to think about with the POET study, it was including both prosthetic valve and native valve endocarditis, but fewer prosthetic valve patients. And only people who were considered to be stable were enrolled. So that's people who had what was felt to be a satisfactory clinical response to the initial treatment. So that means they'd had IV antibiotics for at least 10 days or at least seven days after a surgery if they'd had one. A transesophageal echo done at randomization showed no abscesses or valve abnormalities that would require surgeries. They had to be afebrile for at least two days. Their CRP had to come to have come down. Their white count had to be less than 15. And they had to have no other indications for prolonged IV antibiotics. So for example, if they'd had a large abscess or vertebral osteomyelitis or something like that, that would necessitate a longer course of IV. That wouldn't have been uh, someone who would have been allowed to be in the study. They couldn't have had any concerns around GI uptake. They can't have a BMI greater than 40. They had to be susceptible to at least two different classes of oral antibiotics. And one of the things that I think is really important, there had to be no concerns about compliance, right? And so to me, in real life, I sometimes see people wanting to extrapolate the POET study to switching someone to oral earlier in someone who uses substances, for example, because they have concerns around putting in a pick line and all sorts of things. But it's not the same patient population. There were only five people who used substances enrolled in the POET study. And in our experience, we tend to see much more right-sided endocarditis, whereas this was a left-sided endocarditis study. And you have to feel confident that the person's going to be able to take both drugs orally. And I think that that's the other piece of the study is that we have to remember that these were people who were on then two drugs. So combinations included things like amoxicillin and fusidic acid or amoxicillin and rifampin. There was lots of lamezolid used in combination with other things like rifampin or uh, fusidic acid. So I think that it's important to actually look at those like supplementary tables when you look at a study to sort of see, can I actually apply this to my patient population? Uh, The main way that the 2020 update actually talks about this is saying that if you're considering an early change to oral antibiotics for the treatment of stable endocarditis, you have to get a baseline transesophageal echo before switching and then a repeat one to three days before completion of the oral antibiotic regimen. They don't really give you a lot of the specifics around what antibiotics to choose, which is partly why I'm highlighting the POET study because that's really what this is being based off of. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, as you say, there's like these key points in the guidelines, but it's helpful to always go back to sometimes the primary studies to understand who our patient population is that this best applies to. Great. Thank you. So those conclude my formal questions that I had. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we didn't touch on during the session? I don't think so, but thanks for the opportunity to chat. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Sharma. It was lovely chatting with you. And as always, learned so much from you about these guidelines that are high yield for our residents, but also about how we incorporate patient factors and an important multidisciplinary approach to infective endocarditis. So thank you for joining us today. No problem. Thanks so much.
for listening to this episode on infective endocarditis in adults. Special thanks to Dr. Malika Sharma for joining us today to discuss these guidelines. The Internist Guide to podcast series is produced by Catherine Luer and Shaliza Halan. Executive producers include Allison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Basantha Mohan. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.